This is Blackstone Joe, and you're listening to Slick Talk. If I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. There's a stink of oil out here. All right, welcome into episode 102. This one is called The State of the Stone, and we have none other than President of Blackstone Laboratories, Ryan Stark, back on the program. It's been too long since we've had him back on, and well, part of that, frankly, is that we're busier than ever, and I know that a lot of our customers are aware of that also. We've had a little bit of an increase in the turnaround time on samples, and we want to talk about that today. We want to discuss you know, what has brought about the increased turnaround time on samples you know, what we're doing to adapt to the increased demand, because that's really what it is, is the demand has only gone up for our services. And as such, we're doing our best to manage that. I wanted to have Ryan come on, talk about how the operation's rolling, what we're doing to adapt in these circumstances, and how the stone is operating in general. And part of that includes testing. You know, what tests we run. We discuss certain tests on this show as well as the reason for them. The analysis, what we offer in a report. Really, it's a pretty wide-ranging talk and it's one where you can learn a lot about what makes Blackstone Laboratories unique and what goes into producing the very best oil report in the game. So without further ado, here is Ryan and I chopping it up in studio. I don't know. They seem to have a good team this year. We'll see. Yeah. It's uh, I don't um, I don't live and die by the Detroit Lions. Thank okay. goodness, or I'd been dead long ago. <laughs> <laughs> so it does Purdue get all the emotional batteries as far as uh, sports go? Um, well, those got drained at the NCAA tournament, and uh, they've kind of yet to be recharged. Uh, their football teams, you know, they got a new coach, so they've got some uh growing pains but the yeah. uh, they'll probably get recharged when basketball season starts mm-hmm. you know i just it's uh, one of those things i'll get get my hopes up and uh you know maybe this year you know, oh they're we'll still projected goes, to win so. the big so you know you yeah. have that <laughs> yeah yeah they'll have a good team yeah. you know with uh with Edie coming back and actually all their starters are coming back so mm-hmm. they'll, they'll uh they should have a good team but yeah it, it'll be fun to watch i enjoy watching anyway and oh. my dad used to really get he 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 lived and died by. Did he holler at the TV? Yep, yep. Yeah. He would he would Same. do that. He was uh, he was very very emotional uh, on yeah. that. But um, it's uh, I don't take it as hard. Uh-huh. I always figure the uh, you know if Purdue has a big loss, the the players probably are more disgusted than I am. So okay, don't really have to any complaints. I can just shut off the TV and go to bed. I do my best report writing after a devastating loss. <laughs> Because <laughs> because I want to think about anything but that loss, so I can like dive into the reports and yeah. be like, "This is all I want to think about, and not what I witnessed the night before." So that's actually <laughs> that's when I do my best because all like right. the words per minute increase, all of that. Okay, but yeah, as busy as we are, I just kind of was curious about outside of the lab first. You know, like the the distractions or what you look forward to because you know we work pretty hard and. I know that sports is like one of the outlets, but 
Are you able to do any flying lately, or is that kind of yep, slowed yep. down the, at all? Yeah, uh, the flying actually, I've got more flying done this year than I've done in in years, just wow. because the the plane's out of an or was was finished with the annual pretty mm-hmm. early. I was done with it in February, so I had most of the year to fly. Yeah, and uh, the weather was good this summer. Uh, I was able to take a trip. I flew out to Colorado. Oh, nice! Um, which is a long way for a little 100 horsepower engine yeah how many stops? airplane uh three stops going out and then f- that wasn't i mean it was enough i got there but it mm-hmm. wasn't quite enough to uh, uh make the flights less nerve-wracking i guess should would be a good good phrase so on the mm-hmm. way back i did four stops of fuel and okay did a little bit quicker uh, shorter runs but it was it was fun the uh the i got to see a lot of the country and um the weather was good. I just right. I landed in uh, Fremont County, which is uh-huh. right, um, right as you're getting to the to the Rockies. So I didn't really do any kind of mountain flying. Uh-huh. But um, that was uh, it was enjoyable uh, time, and uh, the plane did did well, and is the longest cross country flight I've ever done. So that was a. And how recent was this? Uh, that was back in the end of at the end of August. Oh, okay, mm-hmm. nice. So did you have any spots that you in particular were looking forward to stopping along the way? Or was it just kind of like purely I'm going to stop here because it's necessity? Or did you have that planned out for, you know, anything you wanted to see in particular? Most of it was just planned out for fuel stops. Um, I was looking forward to the flight through kind of eastern Colorado where you really get into the uh, there isn't much to see in eastern Colorado, at least from the air, and the, the ground's probably not a whole lot different. It's pretty desolate, but it, it was fun to fly through and, and see the Rockies. But by the time I got there, I kind of got off to a late start, and by the time I got there, it was um, uh, getting kind of twilight, and so I didn't really get yeah. a good view of the Rockies like I was hoping when you you know you first go up there. But it was still a still a fun trip. Sure. So, how many oil changes do you have on the engine at this point? Um, I think I've got two done now. Yeah. And the next, next one will be, I'll be doing the annual again over the winter and I'll mm-hmm. change it. Cause this is the first time I actually ran on some leaded fuel. So. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so. so was that purely a necessity mm-hmm. as far as yep. that goes? Most places that you land don't have unleaded. So okay. you land it at an airport that's got a self-serve fuel. That's ideal because you can just pull up put your credit mm-hmm. card in, fill up and then go. You don't even yeah. have to wait for a fuel truck to come around or anything like that. Interesting. So, so all the all the road tax owners that we see that are running unleaded or yeah, unleaded fuel, that's pretty well coordinated then so they don't have to worry about stopping somewhere and then filling up with leaded unexpectedly or Right, and the engine runs fine either way. Right. Uh, but they want you to do a shorter oil change if you're running leaded fuel because the lead kind of uh, can get into the oil and or gets into the oil from blow by and there's, it's hard for it to, um, it tends to, it can cause not necessarily sludging problems, but there's a little bit of, of, uh, sludge. It's le- always left over from running that lead in there. So they, uh-huh. they want shorter oil changes because of that. But if you can, if you're lucky enough to run unleaded exclusively, you're either mm-hmm. only flying around your airport and you're bringing your own fuel in, or mm-hmm. you can be, you know, some places have, uh, like um, unleaded at the pump that they can get, but those airports are kind of rare, so it's yeah. It just depends. I I stopped at one 
uh, last year on a flight trying to do it. And I tried to actually get some fuel, but they didn't have any unleaded fuel. It was, it was the swift fuel that's they're based out in Lafayette. And I was in up at Griffith Merrillville airport, but uh-huh. they didn't have any. So how expensive is it compared to leaded? Um, about the same. I don't know. Cause I didn't buy that leaded fuel is five or six bucks a gallon. It's, it's mm-hmm. pretty salty. Yeah. And, um, more expensive, I think, than even Jet A, but oh, really? It's a okay. yeah. There's less demand for it overall, I think. But so I was wondering because, like, you know, in turbine engines, you know, we're looking at the oil and telling them whether or not they should change it. So I always kind of wondered if that means it's naturally more expensive product just because people are sampling it without changing it. Mm, no, for for turbine engines, they just they don't need to change the oil a lot just because they're so yeah. clean. They're they're so well balanced, and the oil doesn't see the contamination that. It does in a piston engine. There's no blow by, yeah. you know, in a turbine engine. Or if there is, you've got more problems than mm-hmm. than uh, anything. So. Yeah, it's interesting to look at those because you know you stumble upon them as a writer, and you're like, oh, well, this is going to be a simple comment. But on the other hand, if you do see something, it's kind of hard to make heads or tails sometimes. Like, where, why is there suddenly metal? Right? Like, why? Where, why is this trending along with zero, zero, zero? And then we have insolubles crop up out of nowhere, you know? Mm. So it's, it's simplistic most of the time, but it's kind of hard to figure out some of those changes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. On, uh, on some of those, it's, it would be nice to know more about them. I, I, I know basically how they work, but the, um, I'm sure there, if I was ever to take a class on like Pratt and Whitney, the PT6As mm-hmm. or something like that, I'd, you'd learn a lot yeah. and it would be helpful. So that's, that's, I don't know that that's on my bucket list, but it'd be fun to do mm-hmm. if I ever got a chance to do it. So they, they don't have anything along those lines at Oshkosh as far as turbine engines go. What they have at Oshkosh is usually it's pretty basic because they're they're doing something within an hour usually on their mm. uh, and pratt and whitney um they're not like lycoming or continental where they have a well i'm not i don't believe they've got a big booth but like lycoming yeah. continental will actually do engine teardowns at, right. at their own booth mm-hmm. and those those can last for a little while and people can sign up for them so those are nice classes to take i don't yeah. believe pratt, pratt and whitney does anything like that mm. so they do have they do have a booth there and they'll uh, obviously want to sell some engines, but they uh, uh, they don't do a whole lot as far as helping maintenance out. Those engine teardowns, because I, I watched, well, it was a reassembly, actually, um, when I went to Oshkosh last, and that is a high-pressure situation. Because, oh, <laughs> so they had bleachers all around, and there's this one guy who was assisting whoever was leading the, you know, uh, presentation and you could tell that like, you know, he's, he's trying to be careful. He's taking his time and there, he was getting chirped at by several of the guys in the bleachers. <laughs> <laughs> and I was sitting there, I was like, God, I would not want to be him <laughs> right now. Cause yeah. you know, by all accounts, he was doing a good job, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, they, he got mildly heckled yeah. <laughs> during yeah. the reassembly. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, the, they don't have to deal with that when they're putting together for production obviously yep. so it's a yeah yep. it's a high pressure situation and they have to get it done in two hours but oh I, my I can guarantee you the engine's not going to be actually used for anything oh, yeah, other yeah, than yeah. <laughs> tear down reassembly we uh-huh. learned a lot which is why i mean honestly um when we did the the tear down during our report writer training 
at first I thought this is going to be impossible. <laughs> and then slowly but surely it is just kind of a giant puzzle, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah. it does end up being a valuable experience. But yeah, the main reason um wanted to have you on, though, was kind of just a, a state of the stone, if you will. Because um, it, it feels like to me we're busier than ever. Um, and I don't know. It feels like a slow season is slowly becoming a myth. Uh, to Mm -hmm. some extent i mean i know when we get into the dead of winter probably but is this the busiest you've ever seen the operation or oh yeah a little bit of recency bias absolutely no it's uh we've we've never been right now i think we they say we've got like a 15 day turnaround time Mm -hmm. from when the sample arrives and and it part of that's just because it takes it takes us a week almost just to unpack a sample yeah um if it comes in through regular mail uh, you kind of got to wait in line and so mm. our, our turnaround time's never been this bad and yeah um it's i don't know exactly what has prompted the 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 big influx in samples but there's mm. been a lot of them showing up and um it's we always kind of get busier in the fall yeah. The slow time used to be actually kind of would run from middle of November all the way until, you know, end of February, early March, just because mm-hmm. there's, there's not a lot of action out there, but, um, we've, we've become more popular in the Marine industry and, and those guys are all pulling their boats out right about now. Yeah. Uh, we've got them out and it's a good time to do maintenance and things like that. So, um, that type of work is tends to show up in the fall and then, and, and with the same thing with airplanes and motorcycles and, you know, people are putting them away and half the people either change oil when they put it yeah. away or, or change oil when they get it out in the spring. So there's usually a big bunch of samples that roll in from that. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, but yeah, this is the busiest. We always grow. We typically grow about 10% every year yeah. and I haven't, I haven't run the numbers for what we are recently, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if we're a little bit ahead of that track right now. So yeah, and I know we're. I mean, we're we're making changes and and adapting as best we can. So mm-hmm. wondering if you could talk through just what is different now or what's going to be different about the operation to help keep up with demand a little bit. Well, the one of the things that we're really working on right now is getting a new aircraft lab going. Mm-hmm. Um, the aircraft lab that, that we're using now, and, and I probably should talk to you, tell your listeners why we have a whole different lab for aircraft. Yeah, actually, it wouldn't be a bad idea. It's um, because they run leaded fuel. So, mm-hmm. um, and that lead um, tends to carry over for spectrometer samples when you when you have a sample that might have, and, and for, for those who haven't seen an aircraft report, they'll have three to 5,000 parts per million of lead. Mm-hmm. And that's all just blow by from the fuel. So, And they need to use leaded fuel because uh, the lead's in there for anti-detonation purposes. Right. Um, if you don't have it on certain high-powered engines, they'll be, sus- they'll be more susceptible to detonation, which is mm-hmm. about the fastest way you can kill an engine is to yeah. uh, burn a hole through the piston. And uh, that actually... That's bad, but the the compression that gets past the hole in the piston blows all the oil out of your engine, so you end up with oil starvation, mm-hmm. uh, which is just like if you were flying along and somebody opened up the drain plug on your pan, mm-hmm. and drained all the oil out. It's it's going to fail pretty quick. As so, bad as it sounds, yeah. yeah. And it and cars are susceptible to it too, and they they were except cars are they have uh, computer controlled as far as uh, mixture and timing. 
So, and they all have knock sensors as well. Mm -hmm. So if a car, if your automotive engine debt, uh, detects that you're suffering from detonation with the knock sensor, it'll, it'll, uh, go to a rich mixture automatically, or it'll change timing. It'll do whatever it has to do, uh, to ward off detonation and fix that problem or, or make it so it doesn't happen continually again and right. again to where it hurts the engine. But aircraft engines aren't that, um, sophisticated and mm. there's, there's good reasons for it. And, um, it would be nice if a lot of it, you know, if, if they were able to, you know, have things like knock sensors and automatic mixture controls and things like that, especially the mixture, if you took that out of the pilot's hands, it would be, uh, very good for, for the pilots. A lot of pilots, um, they learn how to run the mixture, uh, for their airplanes and, but it's difficult to, uh, uh, they learn it from their instructor and they don't know for sure if they're getting it right or not, or if their instructor knows, they just know here's what works for me. So, but the, um, but anyway, getting back to the lead, that's, uh, the aircraft engines run leaded fuel, the fu the lead gets into the oil. And so we see it in the sample and if, and you have to have a rinse, a longer rinse time on the spectrometer for that uh so that lead doesn't carry over into something like a diesel engine that you might think the lead's from the bearings and might have a bearing problem so right so in order to help solve that problem we just opened up a whole separate lab that's different from the main lab that we do all the automotive stuff and the industrial work and uh, so that helps keep that lead cr carryover problem at bay mm -hmm. um it still happens on occasion and our writers are trained obviously to look for carryover. If you see a sample, an aircraft sample in the middle of an automotive run, you know, you're going to have to uh, rerun the next sample after that. Cause that lead's going to carry over. But, and likewise with, you know, gasoline engines, automotive that are running leaded fuel. Sometimes those will get mixed in with, mm -hmm. you know, plenty of unleaded samples. So we'll see that carry over just like we would with, with aircraft. Yep. Yep. So. Engines that do racing or anything like yeah. that. If they get some racing fuel, which has lead in it, or can have lead yeah. in it, then that'll uh, carry over as well. So there'll always be a, a restore sample here or there too. That yep. Throw yep. That Additives. Off. So, but the, uh, the aircraft lab we have currently is only good for about four runs, which is 144 samples. Now we're running mm -hmm. five runs through there. So we're over capacity. And, uh, so in order to help, you know, alleviate that, we're opening up a new lab in our main building that was used to be the main lab. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's, that'll be, that'll be coming next year, hopefully next year at this time, uh, opening up a new lab. There, there's a lot to it, but it's not as much as some people might think. We don't really need any special power, uh, power requirements to run the spectrometers. If we have 220 volts, uh, single mm -hmm. phase, that's good enough, uh, exhaust hood for running the flashpoints is the yep. biggest thing. Mm -hmm. That's one of the biggest considerations. And so getting that in there and balancing the, the air flowing through the building. So you don't have a negative pressure and it's hard to open your doors and mm -hmm. things like that. So it's a, there's a lot of considerations in that, but you know, we've done it a couple of times. So hopefully we get better each time. And right. uh, so that'll help for the aircraft work, um, for the automotive work. Um, that's, we're, we're, we're pretty busy in that regard too. And, and we don't have plans to open up a new lab at that point. Uh, but we can add more lab operators, uh, which would help, uh, run through, run samples through the lab. Probably the best thing would be to just get more report writers in. And, uh, yeah. uh cause that's usually typically the bottleneck is, is having enough report writers, enough competent mm -hmm. report writers that can look at the data and, yep. 
and uh, write a new uh, write a good comment and send mm-hmm. out the report. So yeah, part of the you know the, the turnaround time is definitely you know when the writer gets it and sends out the the comment. But like, if there's a good thing about the elongated turnaround time, I think it's that we're actually producing a good report that is written by someone who actually is looking at, you know, the data and trends and taking time to write something that's unique because we could be pumping out reports, you know, double, triple the pace if, if all we wanted to do is be automated mm-hmm. and, and just write exactly. metal high, um, yep. caution, you know? So that's one thing I'd tell the listeners and customers is that while the turnaround time is there, it's also because we're not trying to run a laboratory like McDonald's. Right. You know? Yeah. There's, so. There, there takes some time to, to look at the data and uh, understand it. And, and sometimes too, um, you know, re samples have to get rerun cause you want to check, make sure the, mm-hmm. everything, the data is correct. And yep. so that can add an extra day as well. If you, you know, if you called on the phone looking for your sample and they said it'll be done today and it didn't get done today, chances are good. It, it might've been needed to be run through the lab again, just mm-hmm. to make sure the data is correct. I think also like it goes to how the samples are sent. Um, if people are taking time to fill out the oil information slip and we have everything we need right away, that also helps the report turnaround. Correct. And sometimes we, um, there will be reruns that are done just because we had limited info that told us this might be this sort of sample. In reality, it wasn't. We didn't have mm-hmm. all the details. And then so, like, it all flows together, I yep. feel like, as far as the details we have and, and um, our operation, our side of things. But, yeah, it all goes together. So we're going to add in the aircraft lab, but we're not having two aircraft labs, right? You're just moving Correct. the aircraft lab to the new location that can yep. take on more volume. And then we'll be having two labs that run the majority of what we do. Yes. Okay. So yeah, it's definitely involved in um, sizable operation. I mean, as far as the campus goes, we mm-hmm. yeah, we're we're kind of tight on space, and we don't actually have any more space for that many more report writers. Right. But we, we're trying to fix that too. We uh-huh. we've got a uh, we've got a renter in one of our buildings that we're probably gonna uh, have him vacate so just so we can use mm-hmm. his spot and that'll actually that's actually the one of the original blackstone buildings where oh it where is we're moving in yeah where the the boost store is okay that's was well it used to be a doctor's office years ago uh-huh. and then we took that over back in maybe 89 or 90 dad moved from just a little sliver of a section of a building to expand it out into the doctor's office and mm-hmm. uh, converted that to uh, a lab and reception area and things like that and then then we moved over to what where the uh, furrier used to be so mm-hmm. which yeah. is a, that's where our current aircraft lab is now so but it was first the the dentist office takeover was was the original right and i think then, what the original sliver of building that we had was a, I think a dry cleaner oh wow okay and uh, i don't really remember what it was after that i remember when they when uh, dad started it and they came in and had to build some walls and, uh, you know, get the infrastructure there to make a lab. Mm-hmm. And then it expanded out to that. We expanded to the, over to the doctor's office when the doctor went out of business. And then, uh, 
the furrier the dazzler furs was the company that used to own it and he did actually that was pretty cool to see his operation because uh, they would take furs in and uh, actual pelts from animals and tan yeah. the hides and turn them into really nice leather jackets and mm. uh leather coat uh, you know fur lined gloves really impressive mm-hmm. stuff and then furs kind of fell out of favor and back in 94 he went out of business and sold uh-huh. the whole building to us so that's how we got it so i did have to ask you a couple of customer questions related to the oil analysis side sure. there are things i probably talked about before well i know i've talked about some of these before but it's good to get different voices in on it so customer emailed asking about magnetic drain plugs and um, whether or not adding one would mess up his analysis so is that something you advise for or against or what is your view on utilizing those in relation to an oil report and what they can learn from it um I don't really have a view on drain plugs they don't affect our analysis uh, because what they're pulling out is a lot of the stuff that they're pulling out is going to be uh, too big for our machine to read anyway. Uh, we can only read down to about uh, 10 microns inside, or we can read the biggest particle the spectrometer can read is between 10 and 15 microns in size. So, and most of that stuff, you know, it would get attracted to a magnet, but most of it's in solution in the oil. And so, you know, you'd have to run all of the oil right past the magnet and maybe let it sit for a little while before the ma- the magnet was strong enough to pull that, the iron that we read out. Mm-hmm. Now it'll pull out chips. So if you're seeing uh, a lot of, if you've got a problem where your engine's making a lot of large chunks of steel, then a magnetic drain plug will, will see it, assuming that that chip makes its way past the plug and gets stuck on there. So it, it's a good thing to do. I um, I don't know that it's necessary to, you know, to have it on there, but a lot of people like to see it just for peace of mind. If they take the plug out and, you know, it's clean, then they know that at least their engine's not coming apart mechanically inside. Yeah. So how do you approach it when, cause I, a lot of the time concerned customers will send along pictures of the drain plug and whatever buildup is on there. Mm-hmm. How do you approach evaluating those if at all because sometimes i will see one that i'm confident enough in saying well i mean it really doesn't look all that concerning what you got on there and especially if the report looks good i have a hard time telling you you have a problem Mm -hmm. but i feel like that's such a gray area for us to comment on so is that something you like to stay away from when people send along stuff like that yeah we you know we do get pictures people will send in pictures of what they're finding on the plug and i um, you know, unless it's a, a, a super high amount of stuff to where it's, you know, it just looks like, a, I don't, it's hard to kind of explain, but if, unless there's a, a like a God awful amount of steel on the magnet itself, I tend to not worry about it. The nice thing about that is they could take, they can clean that off the plug and then maybe put it in a Ziploc bag and save it. Mm-hmm. So you can be, you can reference it for next time. If you see that much metal or more, now, you know, you've got p- potential issue or even take mm-hmm. a picture of it, you know, with your phone, you can take a picture of it and easy to keep track of the, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. um, one of the things that like, uh, uh, a good thing to think about too, and this isn't necessarily that big of an issue with if you have a magnetic drain plug, but like on my Rotax, there's a magnet 
there's a magnetic plug right underneath the the gears because it's a geared engine so it's got a the it's got a propeller or a reduction gear to run between the engine and the propeller and um, so you're supposed to check that every oil change uh, but if somebody didn't know the plug was there and say it goes you know five or six years between somebody checking it and then they sell the airplane and the new owner knows there's a magnetic plug and they pull it out and there's a whole bunch of metal on it they could get worried but yeah. really it hadn't been say it might just haven't been cleaned in a lot of years so mm. that's always another factor again for an for an oil plug a drain plug that's you you got to take that out to do an oil change, so you assume they're probably going to clean it at that point. But yeah, for some other type of magnets, you know, you just kind of got to wonder when the last time it was cleaned. So mm-hmm. and I just feel like it, it would have to be pretty rare for a situation to come up where the plug looks awful, like really awful, and the oil report looks great. Yeah, those you know, it can happen. You know, engines can develop problems where they're making metal larger than we can see, but usually. If they're making large chunks of metal, they're going to be making small chunks too. And, mm-hmm. and what we'll read is the small stuff. And if they're always concerned too, another thing they can do that um, is, is really common in the aviation industry, but not uh, super common in the automotive world, is you can always cut open your oil filter. Uh, mm-hmm. Or if even easier, if you've got a, the type of oil filter that's just a cartridge, not not the metal spin-on type, those are really easy to pull out and look at. That's how it is on my Mini. You just take it mm-hmm. out and... You visually look at it and kind of get an idea. Once I guess you got to let the drain the oil drain off of it first. But then yeah. Once you look at it, if you see any metal, then that might be a bit more concerning than. But if the filter's clean and you know you see a speck or two on a magnetic drain plug, then it's probably not a concern. Right. Another avenue that comes up fairly often, people will want to see if they have a coolant leak, and they'll be trying to decide whether to send in a sample of the coolant. Or a sample of the oil mm-hmm. to see if they if they have a problem. I don't really see a situation where it makes sense to send the coolant rather than the oil. But do you have a different view on that? Because I feel like the the oil report gives you so much more, and you'll see if there's signs of coolant. Right. Yeah. If you have in, any kind of intermix at all, we'll be able to see it in the oil easier than in the coolant. Mm-hmm. If you've got you know, you know, some visual separation in the coolant, or if you take uh, a lot of times, you'll take the cap off your, your reservoir and you'll see uh, kind of uh, scum in there. Um, that may or may not be an issue. Sometimes it's just means this, the coolant system needs flushed, but mm-hmm. um, if it is oil, then chances are good. We're going to be able to see it in the oil sample. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do test for oil in coolant. When people send in coolant samples, we've got a, that's a, a little strip that we dip in it's kind of like a uh, a litmus te- litmus mm-hmm. strip or something like that for people at fish tanks and they know about that type of thing that uh, but the strip that we use is a dip strip to uh, dip it in the coolant to see if there's any oil in there and uh, so we do check for it but um, you're probably better off checking for uh, uh, antifreeze by looking at the oil and that way too you'll know if it did any if it, if there is some intermix you've got a coolant problem, you'll know if it's doing any damage to the engine itself. Right. And earlier during the lab setup talk, um, we mentioned the flashpoint test just briefly. That seems to me to be like one of the more contentious tests out there in terms of maybe it's mainly amongst like forum users who are looking to get the best analysis possible 
of, of, of their engine. The flashpoint test tends to be the one that gets argued a lot. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, it's been around a long time, but it still is a reliable way to see solvent-based contamination. Oh, yeah, know? for sure. Do you, do you have an understanding why people want to you know, look at other methods more so than the flashpoint or like what's, what is out there that people are looking for that the flashpoint might not give, I guess, what makes it a point contention? Well, the other test, and in fact, probably the most common test that people use other labs used for looking for fuel is a gas chromatograph, Mm -hmm. which is a, and that's a really, um, it's a very good instrument for, for stuff like that you can find, but it's, but using it to just see fuel and oil is kind of overkill because you can, that, uh, that type of machine, if you run, say, a, a sample of gasoline through it, mm-hmm. it'll tell you exactly what compound is in that gasoline, every compound. It'll give out really? a printout of, you know, three or four feet long of here's every compound that's in this gasoline. Mm-hmm. So it's a very good analytical machine. Uh, it's used a lot. There's a lot of uses for gas chromatograph. And and one of the uses that's out there in the oil analysis world is for checking for fuel. Yeah. And it does a good job. It's it's actually more far more accurate than the flashpoint. Um, so your listeners might be wondering why we don't have one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's because what we're mainly concerned about are problem levels of fuel. Yeah. And so if we go in and start reporting, you've got 1% fuel via the gas chromatograph, our customers might get nervous and, or we'd have to explain that that's normal because there's always some fuel dilution in the oil, no yeah. matter what, as soon as that engine's running, you're always going to have some blow bypass the rings and there's always going to be some fuel. What we're always concerned about is problem levels. And that's what the flashpoint's good at picking up. Yeah. And the flashpoint and, and one of the, the flashpoint could potentially be probably not as accurate as a gas chromatograph, but it could be really good if you had a, a really good solid way of identifying the flash at every point, mm-hmm. uh, every time it goes off. Now we've got lab operators that are visually looking at it. Uh, but sometimes flashes aren't as bright as some flashes aren't as bright as others. So there's a, you can get some variation just in one operator for the, uh, compared to one operator to the other in what the flashpoint temperature actually was. So there's a little bit of variation in that. Um, so it's hard to find, you know, uh, it's hard to really quantify low levels of fuel. And that's probably, and that's one of the big reasons why we don't tend to uh, worry about it too much. What mm-hmm. we're looking for are problem levels. When you get enough fuel to lower the flash point by 50 or 60 degrees, now you know you've got a problem. Mm-hmm. We'll probably see a low viscosity too. Right. Um, and, and the flash point's just kind of something that it is an old test. It, it was the original test that they used for finding fuel. Um, and it's, it's a good test. It's hard to fool. Uh, it's a lot, you can, you can have a lot of flash points for the cost of one gas chromatograph and you don't have to buy helium and all kinds of right. uh, different carrier gases that those machines require. And, or you have to, you don't have to have a chemist that knows how to run one either. <laughs> so there's, a, there's a yeah. lot, uh, there's a lot to go into the gas chromatograph and I like the machine. I just, I think it's overkill for what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the flashpoints, uh, been, been a good test for us. It's, it was started, we started doing them back in 85. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still a valid test and it also helps us find water too. So we, right. we can see to really do, getting two tests done at one time by mm-hmm. doing the flashpoint test. And, and by, we see that by, um, you, 
the test is done, you take a brass cup and you pour oil in it and then you put it on a burner and as the, it's heating up the vapors that are coming off the oil ignite. Um, but that, that cup is, is hot. So when you pour an oil into that cup and if it's hot, it'll boil and sizzle and crackle and that's mm -hmm. how you find water. So, yeah. um, we can identify water in it. Um, we can identify problem levels of fuel, something mm -hmm. that you'll need to address. And, uh, so it's a good test. Yeah. Um, and, well, and, and to our credit, you know, we're looking at the remaining tests to help understand if there is a fuel system issue. Like you mentioned the viscosity, you know, if people want to get wrapped up in the amounts, that's fine, but we can see the effects of fuel as well if it's high. So mm -hmm. it's not as if the flashpoint is the lone indicator, I guess, of, of, of what could be going on with regards to fuel, you know, like we can see if additives are diluted, we can see if the viscosity is thin. Yep. And taking all that into account helps, whereas getting wrapped up in the 1%, 2%, etc. Sometimes I think people can get lost in the weeds a little mm -hmm. bit and think, well, I've had, I had 1%. That's, I mean, that shouldn't be there, you know? Right. But in truth, if you look at the rest of the report, you can see whether or not the engine's, you know, doing fine. So, yeah. Um, you mentioned that fuel's always going to be there. Um, but some people have the misconception, I think, that water is also always going to be there. I think there's still that idea out there that even in modern engines, people anticipate water um, just due to moisture in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. But that's really not something that should ever show up, right, as far as a modern engine goes. That, that's correct, yeah. Modern uh, gas or diesel engines, it's really pretty rare to see water. Um, there's going to be... Uh, a certain level of water down in the hundreds of parts per million, mm. pretty, pretty low, lower than what the, uh, the flashpoint test can identify or what our insolubles test can quantify. But, um, the majority of the water that's, that's going to be in the atmosphere stays out of the engine just because the engines now have a lot of emission control systems on them that, uh, are really good at keeping water out and they keep contamination mm. like that out. So it's really not, um, even though water is part of the combustion process when, when an engine's burning fuel, it's going to produce a little bit of water as well. Mm -hmm. Um, most of that should leave with the exhaust and anything that does get in the oil. Um, actually once the oil gets up to operating temperature, that should be hot enough to boil the water out. So if you've got a water, a problem with water in the sample, for when I see water in, in an automotive engine, usually the first thing I think of is there's it's contamination from an outside source when they were getting the sample. Yeah. Uh, if, if somebody didn't have our sample bottle and got a sample out of what they thought was a dry water bottle, um, maybe it wasn't mm -hmm. completely dry. Yeah. Know, I've seen that situation before. So it's mm -hmm. uh, typically we, we discount it and not worry about it, especially if it doesn't look like antifreeze. So. That's another potential source, but um, when we see antifreeze, usually we don't see water in the oil, um, and, and that's because the, the water phase of that, the antifreeze, uh, boils off, um, but we do see potassium and sodium, which are left in the oil after the boiling off happens. Mm -hmm. um, but if you've got an antifreeze problem bad enough that there's water in there, it's a bad problem. It's yep. a gusher. Mm -hmm. and, and you probably know about it because the engine's overheating on a regular basis. So you yeah. at least know something's wrong. Yeah, if anything, that sample's coming in just to see how the rest of it looks, mm -hmm. you know. So getting towards the end here, you know, I try not to battle in the forums. Um, 
because it's kind of a fruitless uh, endeavor. Wise man. But a uh, customer sent along, customer friend of the program, sent along uh, a forum link. And he was like, hey, they're, they're talking about Blackstone. I've been a customer for a long time. Been a listener to the podcast from the day one. Wondered if you'd want to comment on any of this. And most of it I didn't really care about. But there was one misconception about our averages that I, I thought would be worth clearing up. So one customer noted that he didn't like the idea of the universal averages because samples from failed engines would skew those averages, which speaks to a lack of knowledge of, of our operations. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you could talk about averages a little bit and why failure samples are not a concern when people are going to use those averages as a benchmark. Sure. Yeah. Cause, uh, we've got the ability to exclude a sample from the average file. So anything that that's doesn't look normal, we tend to exclude it. Uh, any kind of wear in sample on an engine that's new or something that looks like it's failed. We'll, we won't include those into the averages just so they don't get skewed. So, mm-hmm. and that's a, that's actually one of the first features I put onto our new software. The, the original software that we had, everything went into the universal average yeah. file. So, and those averages would get, would turn to garbage after a while. They weren't, if you do enough of them, mm-hmm. enough samples where they, they look bad, that will skew them. So we would end up having to make new engines, uh, for average file to, to keep our averages file, average file, um, relevant and correct. And mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, that was one of the, the very first features for the new software is to be able to exclude a sample from the average file. So if, uh, if, you know, if we see something thousand parts per million iron, that would skew an average that, mm. that didn't have very many samples in it. So yeah. we've got some samples, uh, some engines that we've got over 15,000 samples in the average files, certain power strokes for the Fords and yep. uh, things like that. Uh, some of the BMWs are probably getting up there and the Subaru engines and we'd see a lot of them. So those averages, when they get to be that mature, they, they're unskewable almost. Mm -hmm. And so at that point it doesn't really matter. But, uh, when we see a brand new engine that we might only have a handful of samples. Yeah. You don't want to, you want to make sure what you're putting in there is, is good. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Our ability to control that as well as our ability to put highlights on the page, you know, it's, it's not strictly a computer you know which i think Mm -hmm. is always good to remind the listeners of that there's actually analysis that's playing a role in those choices so yeah Yeah. try to stay out of the forums as much as possible but (laughs) when we get a good one to talk about i feel like it's worthwhile so yeah the bad press we've gotten bad press and forums and and it's it's usually pretty short-lived because those things there's 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 always new new threads coming out on different stuff so Mm -hmm. and uh, i used to it, it used to make my blood boil actually yeah, a little bit when somebody talked bad about my company, but yeah. you, you, uh, you just kind of, as I've gotten older, I try not to let that type of stuff bother me anymore. Cause it doesn't, yeah. uh, there aren't that many people that, you know, read any one particular thread there, you know, forums are popular obviously. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of good stuff on them too. You just kind of got to weed out. If, if somebody's talking bad about us, they're probably just a competitor or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Or someone who just doesn't understand. And if, right. and if they want to understand, we're very accessible, which sure. I think is, is, is another ideal hallmark about us is whether you want to call or email or, or talk to anyone, whether it be you or the, the newest report writer on staff, anyone can, mm-hmm. can take that question. So, 
Well, it's good to have a report on the state of the stone, Ryan. Thanks right. for hanging out. And yep. uh, we'll, we'll have to get back to those reports now, I think. Oh, yeah, but. yeah. We got some work to do. All right. That was Ryan and I on episode 102. I had a lot of fun having him on in studio. It's hard to find a time to kick back and have a good talk these days, given how busy we are. As soon as I hit stop on this recording, I'll be going right back to the reports myself. It's a Friday. We've got plenty of them in the system, and we're going to get them all out to you as best we can. But in the meantime, thank you so much to our customers, our loyal listeners of this program for supporting us along the way. We're doing our very best to produce the best oil report And we thank you for joining us. As always, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Blackstone Joe signing off. The Slick Talk Podcast is powered by Blackstone Laboratories. If you're ready to start your oil analysis journey, visit blackstone-labs.com to order your free test kit.